You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 15th day of March, 2013. Welcome to episode 262 of the Corbett Report podcast, Solutions, Pirate Internet. When the historians of some future era sit down to write about the history of the development of the internet in our own day and age, they will no doubt note that heady time at the beginning of 2012 when the public, galvanized by the perceived threat to internet freedoms represented by the SOPA and PIPA legislation in the U.S. House and Senate, mounted an unprecedented awareness and protest campaign consisting of petitions, blackouts, and good old-fashioned street activism that eventually succeeded in killing those bills. The Internet is one of the United States' most robust and growing industries. It enables free and open communication among billions, and it's been the backbone for protests around the world. But a new bill proposes we give the power to censor the Internet to the entertainment industry. It's called Protect IP, and here's how it works. Private corporations want the ability to shut down unauthorized sites where people download movies, TV shows, and music. Since most of these sites are outside U.S. jurisdiction, Protect IP uses a couple different tactics within American borders. Firstly, it gives the government the power to make U.S. internet providers block access to infringing domain names. They can also sue U.S.-based search engines, directories, or even blogs and forums to have links to these sites removed. Secondly, Protect IP gives corporations and the government the ability to cut off funds to infringing websites by having U.S.-based advertisers and payment services cancel those accounts. It sets a really dangerous example internationally. It's basically the U.S embracing the idea that when there are foreign websites that contain content that would violate a domestic law, it's okay to try to block access. We have to think about what if another country did that? What if another country looked at how search engines worked or how the internet architecture worked? And what if they passed laws that changed that to reflect their domestic laws? The free speech implications of this. It's like saying there are a few bad books in the library, so we'll just lock the entire library. Dozens of other companies like Reddit and Boing Boing are joining Wikipedia in protest. Also, Google plans on a homepage protest link. You could have 10 million phone calls to the U.S. Congress in one day. This has never happened before in the history of American politics, this kind of direct... uh, uh, internet-inspired action. <laughs> you all know what happened next. Wikipedia went black. Reddit went black. Craigslist went black. The phone lines on Capitol Hill flat-out melted. Members of Congress started rushing to issue statements, retracting their support for the bill that they were promoting just a couple days ago. It was just ridiculous. I mean, th- there's a chart from the time that captures it pretty well. It says something like January 14th on one side, and it has this big, long list of names supporting the bill, and then just a few lonely people opposing it. And then the other side, it says January 15th, and now it's totally reversed. Everyone is opposing it. Just a few lonely names still hanging on in support. Earlier today, a major victory was won by the people. After widespread protests online against the Stop Online Piracy Act, or SOPA, and the Protect Intellectual Property Act, or PIPA, it appears as though the two legislators responsible for the bills have backed down. 
Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid postponed an upcoming Senate vote on PIPA citing legitimate issues brought up by protesters to keep the bill from being voted on. And those same future historians will also no doubt dutifully record, immediately subsequent to those SOPA and PIPA protests, the discovery by those newly energized internet activists of the existence of ACTA, an international trade agreement which had already been signed by numerous countries and was about to be ratified when a new protest movement was formed that once again succeeded in staving off this threat to internet freedom. For the past three years, ACTA has been negotiated in secret by 39 countries. But the negotiators are not democratically elected representatives. They don't represent us, but they are deciding laws behind our backs. Bypassing our democratic processes, they impose new criminal sanctions to stop online file sharing. ACTA aims to make internet service and access providers legally responsible for what their users do online, turning them into private copyright police and judge, censoring their networks. The chilling effects on free speech would be terrible. Thousands of people have gathered in Warsaw to protest the signing of a new treaty enforcing intellectual property rights on the internet. Opponents say the international actor document is pure censorship and a violation of human rights. Artist Alexei Yaroshevsky has been hearing the demands of protesters firsthand. A passerby from England confused scenes on Friday in central Warsaw with filming of a sequel for the Hollywood movie V for Vendetta judging from the number of masked men and cameras. Such resemblance was tangible. The film character fought for revolution. These people are also standing for change. To stop the anti-counterfeit trade agreement, ACTA, from becoming law in Poland. Members of the European Parliament conclusively rejected the controversial anti-counterfeiting trade agreement on Wednesday. In a vote hailed by digital civil liberties groups as a huge victory for citizens, the bill went down by 478 votes to 39. These same future hypothetical historians would then have to note in mid-2012 the development of a new internet activist mobilization campaign to stop yet more internet freedom-destroying legislation, this time going by the acronym of CISPA, and this being legislation that had been introduced to the House in November of 2011, but had been overlooked during a lot of the uh, internet activism surrounding SOPA and PIPA. And yet this was, as the activists said, even worse than SOPA and required another large-scale mobilization effort that again meant convincing a lot of people to get bothered to actually oppose this legislation. And after it passed the House, it was finally voted down by the Senate, narrowly averting an internet catastrophe. Hey, you remember that time a couple of months ago when people on the internet from around the world banded together to stand up against the likes of things like SOPA? Yeah, it was awesome. Remember when that actually worked? Yeah, it was awesome. Well, I hope you still have some fighting yet because it might be time for round two. I don't know, Joe. I'm kind of tired. That's what I thought. This time it's called CISPA, or the Cyber Intelligence Sharing and Protection Act of 2011. Now, before you go jumping on the whole anti-CISPA bandwagon, let's have ourselves a little roundtable discussion, see what this thing's about, and then we'll formulate a livid, all-caps type of opinion on the subject. Yeah, all right. 
So this is a bill with actually a pretty good intent, which is to facilitate sharing of cybersecurity threat information between private companies and the government in the event of a cyber attack. Unfortunately, the way this bill actually ended up getting drafted, it eviscerates all pre-existing privacy law, which means that companies can literally spy and intercept uh, the communications of their customers, uh, companies like Facebook, for example, uh, and then take that information and share it with the government. And the government can receive it without ever getting a, a warrant or having a judge sign any pieces of paper. Well, once again, cybersecurity legislation is having a tough time in Congress. Yesterday, the Cybersecurity Act of 2012 was rejected by the U.S. Senate by a vote of 51 to 47. And then I suppose we could add to this increasingly confusing historical mix the precedent that was set in the 2013 State of the Union Address, where President Obama slyly inserted an executive order attempting to change the cybersecurity paradigm and the functions of the U.S. government in that regard, thus placating some internet activists who realized that the executive order could have been worse, but unnerving many who realized that this meant that the president could change the cybersecurity paradigm at the drop of a hat. America must also face the rapidly growing threat from cyber attacks. Now, we know hackers steal people's identities and infiltrate private emails. We know foreign countries and companies swipe our corporate secrets. Now our enemies are also seeking the ability to sabotage our power grid, our financial institutions, our air traffic control systems. We cannot look back years from now and wonder why we did nothing in the face of real threats to our security and our economy. And that's why earlier today, I signed a new executive order that will strengthen our cyber defenses by increasing information sharing and developing standards to protect our national security, our jobs, and our privacy. And then at this point, we would just have to trust that these future historians, let alone the internet activists of our current era, wouldn't be too bewildered by this increasingly confusing historical narrative to fail to notice that CISPA is back again. And now to another issue that played a prominent role in last night's State of the Union address, cybersecurity. After announcing the signing of a new executive order designed to strengthen cyber infrastructure, the president made a push for Congress to pass comprehensive legislation focused on addressing the issue. And today, he just might get his wish. Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee Mike Rogers and Congressman Dutch Ruppersberger are resubmitting the Cyber Intelligence Sharing and Protection Act, better known as CISPA. That's right, CISPA is back, and so it's time to start up the outrage machine once again, mobilize the troops, because we have another piece of legislation to fight. And if you are getting the impression that this is one big game of whack-a-mole, where we whack down one piece of legislation carrying one set of acronyms, and another pops up in another hole to take its place, and we have to whack that one down, and it continues going on and on and on until such time as we simply give up the game... 
I think you're right in that assessment, because that is ultimately what we are facing. We are engaged in a war of attrition. And for those of you out there who have heard that term but don't know what it is, a war of attrition is a war that is not won by superior firepower or by better equipment or by more troops on the ground. It's a war that is won by one side simply showing up for the fight day after day after day until such time as the other side stops resisting. And that is the type of war that is generally won by by resources at the end of the day and supply lines, the ability to simply dig in your heels and uh, to simply continue fighting until such time as the other side gives up. And unfortunately, when it comes to the internet arena, the internet activists tend to be doing this on their own time and on their own dime, whereas the corporations that are attempting to get this legislation passed and the political puppets who are in their back pockets have, for all intents and purposes, limitless resources to devote to the problem of internet freedom. And so we are in a rather sticky wicket in this case, where there seems to be an endless stream of legislation coming down the pike, and we can continue knocking them down one after another after another by mobilizing masses of people against them. But that takes an awful lot of work, and human nature being what it is, people will eventually stop caring, so that this process of putting these pieces of legislation forward might not work the first time, or the second, or the third, or the tenth, or the seventy-second, or the hundred and twenty-eighth, but it might work the 157th time, and if so, it will still be worth it at the end of the day for the companies and uh, corporations and political puppets who are attempting to limit our online freedoms, because it continues to be a truism, and now more so than ever, that uh, corporate lobbying of government remains the biggest return on investment that is possible in our economy. And that is a sad indictment of the fascistic system we are living in, but it is, unfortunately, an accurate description of that system. And unfortunately, I'm here to tell you today that as bleak as that picture is, it gets even worse. Because there is a certain degree to which it might be said that the legislative side of these attacks on internet freedom may not be the ultimate way that this fight is decided one way or another after all. Because, unfortunately, what we're seeing is that the corporations, who obviously have the vested interests in limiting internet freedoms, are already implementing some of these ideas behind the scenes through collusion. We'll begin with dslreports.com with the latest on this story. ISP six strikes to begin this weekend on July 1st. Last summer, major ISPs, including Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, and Cablevision, signed off on a new plan by the RIAA and the MPAA taking aim at copyright infringers on their networks. According to the plan, after four warnings, ISPs are to begin taking mitigation measures, which range from throttling a user connection to filtering access to websites until users acknowledge receipt of educational material. As you might expect, that educational material chapter on fair use rights likely won't exist. The plan, as with most plans of this type, was hashed out privately with the government's help, but with no consumer or independent expert insight. As a result, groups like the EFF say the plan has massive problems like relying on the IP address as proof of guilt, placing the burden of proof on the consumer while forcing users to pay a $35 fee if you'd like to try and protest your innocence. While it's taken some time, it now appears that the project is poised to officially begin July 1st. According to RIAA boss Carrie Sherman, 
Most of the involved ISPs are ready to implement their piracy counterattack this weekend, though different ISPs will again take different approach approaches in handling repeat offenders. Granted, the lion's share of pirates will simply VPNs and proxies, with the end result being no real dent on piracy, but even higher broadband rates as ISPs pass on the cost of these countermeasures to all consumers, pirates or not. Now, the Kerry Sherman quote goes back to a CNET News article, RIA chief notes ISPs to start policing copyright on July 1st. James? Well, three, at least three interesting aspects from this story to pick up on. The first being that uh, this goes further into hardwiring into law, the precept that you are personally criminally responsible for everything downloaded via an IP address that you own, um, which has all sorts of uh, tricky legal ramifications and I think is something that people should be questioning. Secondly, uh, as that article points out, pirates are just going to use VPNs and proxies, so this does absolutely nothing at base to actually get to the, the root of the problem, um, assuming it is a problem, and assuming intellectual property is not just some figment of the RIAA's collective imagination that they are trying to enforce. Uh, through the uh, the big stick of big government. But thirdly, I think the most important thing for people out there to keep in mind is when you give your money to a Comcast or whatever IP, IPS, uh, uh, ISP, sorry, that you're, uh, that you're signing up with, if you are giving them money to give you a service in which they're going to be treating you like a criminal and monitoring all your traffic to look out for your alleged copyright violations, then you are endorsing that. We choose with our dollars what we uh, what we want to do and if you are giving money to that company that does that then you are absolutely complicit in this and that's the point that has to be taken away from this because people might cry out oh for mommy or daddy government to come in and solve every problem but the, the real tr changes begin at home and if you give your money over to this system then you are helping to bring that system into effect so either go with a different ISP or uh, if there's no other alternative just wait for one to come because ultimately we have to start saying no to this system when we can and if we don't put our foot down and if we don't say no it will never change in a way that's constructive or helpful it will only ever get go worse than what it is right now so once again the solution starts with you the solution starts by looking in the mirror and choosing what you will or won't support now this broadly speaking is the problem there are multiple attack vectors on our internet freedoms and it is not a target that is sitting still it is not a target that can be shot down once and will remain down, it is a target that is multifaceted and constantly changing and constantly coming towards us one after another after another. And if it's not an attempt to crack down on internet freedoms in the name of intellectual property, then they will roll out another boogeyman or excuse to crack down on what you do online. U.S. Director of National Intelligence James Clapper identifying cybersecurity as the top worldwide threat in an annual assessment Tuesday. The increasing risk of cyber attacks on U.S. infrastructure edging out al-Qaeda and terrorism, which Clapper described as more likely to harm U.S. interests abroad than at home. The scope and sophistication of the attacks, according to experts, points to a nation being behind this, not just a loose group of hackers. When the wave started nice in September, yeah. Senator yeah. Joe Lieberman, yeah. then chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, said, I think this was done by Iran. What do you hope will happen? You hope they'll get arrested. You hope they go to jail. But it's never going to happen. 
It's never going to happen, analysts say, because many cyber attacks like this one are backed by the Chinese government who will deny any involvement. You can read the full story in this week's Bloomberg Business Week. Now, we could continue to go on elaborating the point and demonstrating even more of the ways in which our online freedom and privacy is under attack, but I assume that if you are a regular listener to this podcast, that you will already be familiar with many of those pieces of information. And if you are watching The Corporate Report for the first time, then by all means, go back through the archives and take a look at some of our previous work, including especially a lot of our conversations with James Evan Pilato of uh, MediaMonarchy.com on New World Next Week, where we have talked about the cyber space war and many different aspects of that for an awfully long time. But as I say, I'm sure that all of you are at least passingly familiar with the problem, the attack on our internet freedoms, and that begs the question then, what is the solution? And if this uh, this framework of problem and solution makes you a bit uncomfortable, well then, again, you've been paying attention because, of course, problem, reaction, solution is the way through which changes in our society are wrought by the so-called would-be power elite who hold the positions of power and are able to create the problems in order to garner the reactions in order to justify the ready-made solutions. And we already know there are ready-made solutions for the problems of internet freedom. For example, Richard Clark's now, I hope, infamous statement that the, there is an iPatriot Act, Cyber Patriot Act, that is waiting in the wings, waiting for a Cyber 9-11 in order to justify being tabled and which will change the face of the internet as we know it. So we know that there it remains at any moment the possibility of some attack, some false flag attack or whatever it may be to fundamentally change the internet paradigm and potentially to remove sources of information like the Corbett Report from the online cybersphere once and for all. So it remains a very real problem, and part of the problem are the phony solutions that tend to be offered in these cases. And while I wouldn't say that the activism that we've seen against such pieces of legislation as SOPA and PIPA and the ACTA Treaty and now the TPP and CISPA and all of these other acronyms is necessarily a false solution, I think it is not at any rate a waste of time for people to be Uh, to be fighting against this and to be informing others of why their internet freedom is important to fight about in the first place. But it can't be the real solution, the solution at the end of the day, because it will continue forever and ever as long as we remain in the system that we're in. So again, what is the solution? Well, this is a topic that I broached recently with veteran radio broadcaster Jack Blood on uh, the Corbett Report went on during his monthly visit last uh, last Monday. So I hope that you will go back through the archives to listen to this interview in its entirety. But let's just listen to a clip from this interview where we talk about the problem, reaction, phony solution, and real solutions of the internet freedom paradigm. So now what are they what what realms will they go to? Well, as you've reported and I've reported, they have basically the Internet Patriot Act already written and the Internet Pearl Harbor basically planned. It's just like rolling out Osama bin Laden's body. It's got to be just well, whatever his body is. It's just got to be, you know, done at the right time. And so the right time is coming and this year is one of the things we would predict that there would be enough 
carnage on the internet. Enough people would get hurt. There would be enough concern that Obama could get through an executive order, such as you know recalibrating CISPA cybersecurity with executive order. So now we get to the question of, well, what's going to happen next? Where are the casualties going to be? And I think we've already seen them. I think we see them all the time when people's YouTubes are deleted. This is Google. This is Google. Google is a branch of the shadow government. Now, Eric Schmidt, Google, look it up. They're actually, I believe they moved their campus to the NASA, NASA property. And this is kind of, I guess it's a little complicated, James, but... We see that the biggest holders of Facebook is nothing more than NSA and the CIA, and they gather intelligence from everything you say and do, that the most of the infrastructure of the Internet is government. It is the powers that be or the new world order. Yet still, with all of this against us, we still seem to be edging them out, this Rand Paul filibuster and how that you know, got – momentum on Twitter and Facebook and how that kind of um, expelled and even put pressure on the old guard like McCain and Lindsey Graham, the APAC whores. You know, the, these are things that, that the powers that be don't like and they've been fighting and they think they're winning and then the next thing you know, there's a trend and they're not. And these guys realize that they can all be taken out tomorrow by a really good Facebook post. <laughs> so then that's the problem. So now we get to the reaction part, right? Uh, yes. Well, that's what's coming down the line. And uh, the question more so than the, the reaction, I guess, is is really what the average person, the individual out there can do to protect themselves and, and what they're doing online. The reaction part is the media says something must be done, something must be done. And there's a lot of people hand wringing and boohooing and crying and people start feeling less safe. And, you know, maybe their bank account got tinged for 10 bucks and then they're just all in. When we get to the point where money is now not, you know, a fiat piece of paper, but it's a credit on your cell phone, it's going to be even more important and even more dangerous. So that's the reaction. We get to the solution part of all of this. Well, obviously, we've got to stand up to the people that we hire, our so-called trusted representatives, and, and we need to make sure that they understand where the will of the people is, the consensus might be, that if they want to be elected or reselected, if they want to stay in power, they've got to listen to this. And I think there's enough of us out there from all spectrums of the political spectrum that can speak up on this, and that's how we won CISPA and SOPA in the past. Beyond that... We are looking at a case where we need to start building pirate wireless internet hubs and stashing that stuff away, testing it out, and getting that stuff tried and true because it might come to a point where we've got to have a pirate internet. Now that's music to my ears because I think that's exactly what people can do with the technology they already have sitting in their home and there are groups out there that are working to make that happen. Um, have, you, have you had anyone on to talk about this idea before? Not for a while because we were really riding a wave of pirate radio here, James, as you might know, several years back and I saw the power of that. When we put a 100-watt transmitter in Austin, Texas, we had more listeners than the mainstream clear channel stations because that's how hungry people were for the information that we were putting out. And we were, again, subjected to the Internet police. They'd come to your door. And, you know, they don't have to have any probable cause per se. They come to your door and they threaten you. We're not only going to take all your equipment, but everything else you own. This is where this is going to go. 
Um, not to scare anyone away from this, but this is where this is going to go. It's garage-style music, garage-style <laughs> radio stations, and garage-style internet. So what we're going to need, and I already know people that are putting this together. In fact, my network is is really good at this, operating off of their own servers. We need to you know, figure out and investigate and find the best way to transmit wireless. And how it's going to work is there's going to be multiple hubs that can be connected together. We used to call them in the pirate radio business slaves. They would, you'd put up a, uh, inter, or, you know, a pirate radio station, but you'd pick up programming from a central broadcaster. That would be your network or my network, or you can put together with programmers the sorry for that term, the, uh, you know, a variety of, of talk radio or music or art or entertainment or whatever you want. And you can broadcast it and people can do this right now and not for a ton of money. But I'm just saying now we need to get, start getting ready for this because I don't, see, I don't see the internet being free literally for the next five years. I think in the next couple of years, we're going to lose major freedoms on the internet. Ah, uh, now we're getting somewhere. Well, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to longtime listeners of this podcast that the real answer at the end of the day does not rely on hoping that some centralized power and authority and monopoly of violence will fight another centralized power and authority and monopoly of violence and somehow we will come out victors in that struggle. That isn't how the world operates and that isn't what we should expect to happen. So once again, we find ourselves in the false paradigm of hoping that the government will somehow regulate the corporations which so clearly are dictating the legislation in the first place and that once that regulation, even should it be passed, uh, goes into effect, that it will somehow be regulated and overseen in such a way that the corporations will really be under the thumb of that government regulation and everything will be happy and everyone will be online and safe and, and, and nicely swaddled in the loving clothing of the government. Uh, that, of course, is a pipe dream. We've talked about the reasons why that is over and over on this podcast. You might, for example, hearken back to our previous podcast episode on the regulation trap for more about that particular false paradigm. But if we are going to oppose that false paradigm, what do we offer as the real solution? Well, again, it has to be if we are fighting these centralized, so-called self-proclaimed would-be powers and authorities, then the answer has to be decentralization for like-minded people to come together spontaneously and voluntarily in communities of interest to go bypass the system, the infrastructure of this system that, that has been erected around us completely. And that sounds all very good philosophically speaking, but of course the other half of this is the practical nuts and bolts of this. So let's get down to brass tacks. And the question is, can we bypass these ISPs and the government agencies and all of this? Can we bypass the internet infrastructure that already exists in order to enable a different version of the internet? And the answer is, yes, we can. Let's discuss technically what is a mesh network and why we need it. Um, Amisha, let's start with you. Mesh networks are a technology that uh, has have been existing for a while now, and uh, it's completely timely for mesh networks to uh, improve connectivity for everybody today. And uh, when you see the limitations we have with uh, 3G, 4G technologies, uh, Wi-Fi network access, 
um, net mesh networks can help a lot to improve uh, the situation and bring to every consumer um, ubiquitous access to the internet. But but in a technologically, in a nutshell, what is it? Instead of my phone connecting to a tower, my phone connects to another phone. Sri, how does that? Has that that's right. Uh, so the the original mesh networks were designed in the military uh, to for survivable communication, so that uh, soldiers could communicate with each other in the most harshest conditions. And they have some very powerful radios that they connect to uh, so that they can communicate over tens of kilometers uh, and get back, you know, uh, sit uh, and talk and, and, and get the data. Uh, and these are uh, without any infrastructure because the soldiers can't have any infrastructure when they're in a, in a battlefield situation. So that's what the idea of a mesh network is. And so we ha since the, the initial application of mesh networks in the military, there have been many different variations of mesh networks that have been uh, used throughout the world, both mm -hmm. for... Um, uh, cities, as well as for um, small scale inside buildings, uh, you know, in uh, uh, for utilities, uh, for utilities across very large areas. Uh, uh, so, and, and and as well as the peer-to-peer um, -peer meshes like uh, like Open Garden, where people are trying to uh, uh, connect with each other. Cool. All right. Now let's uh, from uh, the first world problem of going to a conference and not being able to get a solid connection to the real world of people who need to communicate in order to uh, save lives or perhaps their entire country. Sri, I want to talk about what, what you've been working on since you've left uh, Tropos. You sent me this paper about, right. uh, about using mesh networking as a way to route around intentional blockage of communications. That's right. Uh, talk, talk to us more about that. Yes, uh, having built about 850 cities across the world at Tropos Networks uh, using Wi-Fi meshes, I've learned a lot about what makes them work and where they uh, don't work. And, and so the, uh, there are certain physical limitations to uh, the current uh, Wi-Fi-based mesh networks, which uh, the reason Wi-Fi is great is that the cost is so low, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that's made it so successful around the world. Uh, it's also available in unlicensed spectrum, which is available in mo pretty much all every country around the world. So anybody can f be free to operate without any license. And uh, the, the the challenge of Wi-Fi is that it is um, uh, it doesn't actually it, it be, so users really want to take this and then spread it all over the world, but they can't because of the limitations of the physical layer. Uh, that the links can only go so far, and they require a lot of power uh, it, for a battery-powered device to actually communicate over distances greater than 500 feet. Mm -hmm. uh, even 500 feet is a lot for a Wi-Fi device, a battery-powered Wi-Fi device. And what I've been looking at is that, you know, I see the energy that people have to build these, these, these meshes, and what they really want is something where they can just deploy a network anywhere in the world and start communicating over large distances. Like the military does. Like the military does. In fact, the military has been doing this for decades, in fa for, for troops for over 10 kilometers getting, you know, uh, voice and video. Uh, and and they, they operate from 20 megahertz to 2.5 gigahertz or 2,500 megahertz, they have radios that scale all that, that spectrum and then essentially have complete freedom of operation. Uh, these are called uh, small unit operations, uh, uh, situational awareness uh, radios. And, and they, you can look it up on, on, on the internet, and they have uh, um, uh, tremendous flexibility. However, that's because they're the military. They, 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 don't, they can you know, pretty much, uh, in a time of need, they can operate in, any, in anything. And so uh, the, what they also have is they have techniques where they have radio techniques that... that can, if applied in the unlicensed spectrum, can actually go uh, 10 times as far and 10 times as fast. Uh, and so compared to Wi-Fi. Uh, and and in, in many cases, so 10 times the coverage area uh, of Wi-Fi because of the, uh, the direct sequence spread spectrum and the frequency hopping and, and the way that they've, uh, the techniques they've developed. However, that's not part of the Wi-Fi standard. 
and, and they can scale down to very large, uh, long links. Mm -hmm. and, and so that, I think, the, taking that kind of military thinking and, and, and combining it with the, the biggest trend in the world right now in technology is the smartphone. That, you know, the smartphone is, is in, even impacting everyone, including the military. They're having to adapt to the smartphone. They're, they're now uh, realizing that their radios are, you know, have to somehow connect with, with, with the smartphones and, because everyone has one. Mm -hmm. and, and so, uh, but the, the limitation of the smartphone is that it requires a cellular network. Is that there, and, and the many parts of the world uh, don't have either, they don't have a free cellular network or they don't have a cellular network at all. Mm -hmm. So many countries, there's three, hundreds of millions of people just don't have access to cellular networks. It's hard to imagine in this world where, uh, you know, we, we carry yourself, we, we're always in, with text messages and with, with video and so on, but uh, there, are, there are hundreds of millions of people in the world that don't have access to that. And there's an, another, even, uh, there's over a billion people who don't have access to basic websites that we, we all just take for granted in the United States. They can't get information uh, uh, because of government censorship. So in all these sort of situations, I think the, uh, if a new kind of radio layer that supports the social... Uh, uh, mesh concept uh, w could really make a, a tremendous impact in, in, in the reach of these networks. And so a lot of the problems we see right now could be just uh, uh, solved with the technology. And what's been limiting it so far is that these technologies that the military uses have been very expensive. They've been, you know, uh, maybe perhaps several thousand dollars per, per unit. And now with the smartphone in our hand, we have so much processing power in these devices uh, compared to 10 years ago that we can, actually put, we can actually build very powerful mesh networks mm -hmm. from a processing standpoint. And you combine that with a, you know, the Wi-Fi radio concept is actually 20 years old. The, base, the basic standard is 20 years old. There are much better, uh, with the new processing capabilities and with the, the new uh, 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 cost of RF chips coming down so much, for, for, for the cost of a, a you know, for, for tens of dollars, you can actually build a much more powerful radio that, that sits, you know, just like this battery pack here, uh, you know, if you... You connect it to your mm -hmm. smartphone, and you have this very powerful radio that can connect just like the military radios. And, and, and now, when we talked about this first, you, you talked about using this in instances where governments are actively trying to deny people access to the internet, uh, to so they so to prevent another Arab Spring, for mm -hmm. example, by blocking access to Twitter or mm -hmm. shutting down the cell towers or yes. firewalling a country. Right. And, and you think that this technology can route around that? Yes. I, I think, uh, what the, so for example, if you look at what's happening in Syria, there yeah. are a small number of activists that are using satellite connections. And they, they happen to be, the satellite connections are very costly, very low speed, and for a very few number of people. And as a result, what's happening is that the governments are, are, are going in and, and trying to target the machines that are running on these satellite connections. So they're very vulnerable because there's so few of them. But when you have a technology like Wi-Fi at that Wi-Fi scale, but much more powerful, no, the, the, the scale, there's no way to, to stop that many uh, uh, radios out there. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's just uh, sort of, it, there's a security in numbers. If you have much larger proliferation of these devices, uh, you know, you can, you can overcome any, pretty much no, no government will be able to stop it. That's right. With the advent of wireless mesh networks, we really do have within our grasp, quite literally, the technology that is needed to create an alternative infrastructure to the internet that will enable connectivity in a way that cannot be censored or uh, otherwise dictated by the centralized authorities. 
we have in effect in our grasp the idea of decentralizing telecom. This is a radical idea, and I hope at least some of the listeners and viewers note the delicious irony that some of this technology has been developed in the context of the U.S. State Department-sponsored NGOs trying to overthrow quote-unquote dictators in foreign countries that just happen to be in the interests of the United States and its allies. And we can take those very same technologies and use them not against the dictatorships that the U.S. State Department wants to overthrow, but use them against the U.S. State Department and their their friends uh, themselves. This is the wonderful double-edged sword of technology. And all that's required of us is to understand this technology and how it works and then to implement it. It is, in fact remarkably simple. The problem of all of this is getting people motivated enough to want to do it. So let's start breaking down how this can be done, and we'll do so by turning to an excellent article from the always informative Tony Cardellucci, who usually, of course, is associated with Land Destroyer, uh, the Land Destroyer Report, but in fact has another blog which he is associated with, and that is localorg.blogspot.com. This is a website that offers pragmatic solutions to political problems, and I wholeheartedly suggest people go and take a look at it, because I am always 100% in accord with Tony Cardellucci and, and his ideas for solutions. I think he has some very great practical ideas for how people can get get off of the grid that would seek to enslave us in so many ways. So you can go to local org to find out more about their, their agricultural, business, educational, health, infrastructure, sci-tech, and other solutions. And on that, uh, on that website, you will find also an article about the very topic we're addressing today. Under the headline, Decentralizing Telecom, this article was published on the 2nd of December 2012, and it reads in part, quote, SOPA, ACTA, the criminalization of sharing, and a myriad of other measures taken to perpetuate antiquated business models, propping up enduring monopolies, all have become increasingly taxing on the tech community and informed citizens alike. When the storm clouds gather and torrential rain begins to fall, the people have managed to stave off the floodwaters through collective effort and well-organized activism, stopping, or at least delaying, SOPA and ACTA. However, is it really sustainable to mobilize each and every time multi-billion dollar corporations combine their resources and attempt to pass another series of draconian rules and regulations? Instead of manning the sandbags during each storm, wouldn't it suit us all better to transform the surrounding landscape in such a way as to harmlessly divert the floods, or better yet, harness them to our advantage? In many ways, the transformation has already begun. While open source software and hardware, as well as innovative business models built around collaboration and crowdsourcing have done much to build a paradigm independent of current centralized proprietary business models, large centralized corporations and the governments that do their bidding still guard all the doors and carry all the keys. The internet, the phone networks, radio waves, and satellite systems still remain firmly in the hands of big business. As long as they do, they retain the ability to not only reassert themselves in areas where gains have been made, but can impose preemptive measures to prevent any future progress. As impressive as a hydroelectric, a hydroelectric dam may be, and as overwhelming as it may be, seem as a, as a project to undertake, it will always start with but a single shovelful of dirt. The work required becomes in its own way part of the payoff, with experience gained and with a magnificent accomplishment to aspire toward. In the same way, a communication network that runs parallel to existing networks, with global coverage, but locally controlled, may seem an impossible, overwhelming objective, and for one individual or even a small group of individuals, it is. However, 
the paradigm has shifted. In the age of digital collaboration made possible by existing networks, the building of such a network can be done in parallel. In an act of digital judo, we can use the system's infrastructure as a means of supplanting and replacing it with something superior in both function and in form. End quote. Now, that is definitely not where this article ends, and I will beseech you to go and continue reading this article as it lays out point by point exactly what would have to be done and how it would have to be done to set up this type of parallel system that could eventually supplant and replace the system that we're currently on, which is censorable and controllable by the centralized authorities or so-called authorities. And it goes through in very careful detail talking about mesh networks and how they can be used and harnessed and uh, pointing to such groups as Project Byzantium, which is already starting to create uh, wireless mesh networks and protocols for running services like a Twitter or a Facebook or a blogger or a Gmail through this wireless mesh network that has nothing to do with the internet backbone and thus nothing to do with the systems of control associated with that backbone. And then it talks about the process by, first of all, what a a locally run and small, humble uh, wireless mesh network can do at first as this project starts to get off the ground, talking about the, uh, the education of the experience itself, simply building up the infrastructure, becoming part of all of this, um, is working with others, collaborating, it gives that firsthand experience of this type of process of building up an alternative system, which would be transferable to other areas as well. Uh, it allows communication, obviously, between different areas of the community. It involves uh, building up local businesses, which would be able to take advantage of this local wireless mesh network to promote themselves and to get their name and, and understanding of their business out to others in their local area. And it would allow people to shape and uh, perf- and and publish and distribute and share locally produced media of various sorts, thus uh, spurring hopefully more local creative production in the process, and creating, of course, the space for the sharing of information that would be completely alternative to what would be available in the officially sanctioned and designated and approved internet backbone uh, architecture. Uh, And this is envisioned as being a part of an orderly transition, not an all at once, everything, the entire internet as we know it is going to come to an end, but an orderly transition where wireless mesh networks are built up by local communities and when they're tested and shown to be a a valuable tool for people to, to come together and interact, and as clampdowns start to happen on the free and open internet, more people will start to join these wireless mesh networks. And this system can be built up in parallel with the existing infrastructure until such time as people don't need the existing internet anymore. They'll be able to access these mesh networks, which will then be able to connect to each other. And eventually, uh, unfortunately for the powers that be, eventually will have a global reach uh, as the technology and the processes develop. Um, It is, uh, I think, the most possibly empowering message possible that we don't have to sit here and and constantly mobilize the troops time and time again to get outraged in order to lobby Congress and the Senate, in order to get some piece of legislation smacked down, in order to protect this internet network, which ultimately, at the end of the day, you and I have zero control over, we can actually start replacing the actual core infrastructure of the networks that we're using and to to really create our own, to completely bypass the corporate control. And this is the type of idea which truly 
can be revolutionary in the most deeply meaningful sense of that word, in the sense of truly, completely creating not just a, a different uh, weapon to use in, in a battle, but to completely occupy a different battlefield on a different space where the corporations can't even come. So this is an absolutely awesome idea, and I really hope that you guys out there will start to check into it. And you can start to look, for example, at something like Project Byzantium, which has these protocols and, and software already set up in order to transform any device with the, the appropriate interface, the right Wi-Fi card, would be able to, to join this type of net network. You would be able to start your own. And uh, for the technologically inclined, I truly hope that you will get involved in, in some sort of project like that on your local level. If and when you do, please let me know. I'd be happy to talk about it and, and maybe even have you on the program to talk about it and to hopefully motivate others to get involved. Once again, the solutions to centralized power and authority do, do not lie in hoping that centralized power and authority will take care of itself. It comes in decentralizing the system, getting off of the systems of control, and creating our own grassroots, people-controlled systems that have nothing to do with this corporate infrastructure. Well, that's a lot to take in in one podcast episode. So as always, I will exhort you to go and take a look at the show notes for this episode where all of the articles and videos that we've uh, talked about today will be linked up for your perusing pleasure. And once again, I'd like to remind you that this media is brought to you by you. Not only can you help contribute financially to keep this media coming to you, but also it also helps greatly if you even just talk about these issues and, uh, and spread some of this media around. To, uh, to people that you know out there who might be able to, uh, to make use of this information. So that's what I ask, and I hope that you will uh, be here with me again next week for another edition of this podcast. Until then, I'm your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me, and looking forward to talking to you again next week. Yeah, little soaks in my headphones. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber, a weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.